Well, welcome. We are continuing in uh, Romans 7 this morning, and we're looking at the latter part of Romans 7, so you can go ahead and turn there with me if you wish. This is, whew, this is, this is the tough part of Romans 7. This is a section of Scripture that theologians and Christians for hundreds and thousands of years have wrestled with and tried to understand and, and debated and, and written about. And we're going to try to handle it here in 45 minutes. <laughs> um, to give you some background on uh, where we're at here, remember uh, by way of review that Paul's focus in this middle section is on sanctification. Sanctification, our growth, our continued growth in Christ, flows out of our justification, which is received and based upon faith alone. That was his focus in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and into chapter 5 of the book of Romans. Sanctification, particularly at the end of chapter 5 and into 6, is rooted in our union with Christ our federal head. We're no longer under Adam. We are under Christ. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. We've been raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6. And who we once were as slaves to sin and death under Adam, uh, now we've been married to another. We are slaves to God. We are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. As these are things that we've considered these last few weeks. Um, last time, two weeks ago, we talked about the motive to pursue sanctification. Right? This is Paul's now turning to struggle with that question. Okay, we've been freed from the law. Um, the gospel and, and love then for our new spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the power and incentive and motivation for obedience. I mean, and that was a question. Remember, if you take away the law, the law doesn't play a role in our salvation. And as we'll see, the law, even in our sanctification, has a very limited role. Then, then, then what is the power and what is the incentive? Why would people want to obey? Well, he sets forth Christ as, as that motive to pursue sanctification. The law as a burden is removed. And the new motivation for and the framework that shapes a Christian life is the gospel and love for Christ. The law is what shows us the way that we honor and love, excuse me, honor and serve the one we truly love. That's what we looked at last time. So it's understanding the role of law in growing in sanctification. It's, it's understanding the role of the law in the Christian life. So that's all review. Um, today, the issue at hand now is since the law, since Paul has said this, that the law incites sin, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. The question then might become, is the law a bad thing? I mean, he said some pretty rough things about the law. Um, is it an evil thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it something to be avoided? That's the question he seeks to answer now. And if it not only incites sin, but we've been released to it. Remember, first part of Romans 7, you've been married to another. You're not married to the law anymore. 
The law is dead to you, he says. What good is the law then? It incites sin, we've been released to it and married to another, well then we can just do away with it, right? That's what he's, that's what he's arguing. That's what he, the question he's going to answer. And this as well, how can the law and holiness seemingly be at odds when to most people the law and personal holiness go hand in hand? Sounds like he's saying the law and growth and grace, sanctification, are opposed to one another. So that's what he's going to answer today, or that's what he's going to address today. And uh, what we're going to see, what, what I'm going to argue is, the law exposes sin, and sin in turn uses the law to incite us to more sin. But we'll also see that yet, even still, the law is still holy and righteous and good. The problem is the sinful passions within us. The problem is not the law. And that the Christian can delight in the law because it beautifies our redemption in Christ, even though it can never make us holy, even though it can never save us. It beautifies what we've been saved from, and as we've already considered, the law also, or we'll see again, the law also points us um, to, to what pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and, and break this down. Let's go ahead and read the first section, uh, Romans 7, uh, 7 through 12. Um, may I ask a volunteer, please, to read it loud and clear for us. Thank you. Even though the law stirs up sin, it is not a bad thing because it reveals sin, Paul says. The first thing he says there. Um, The law is how we learn what sin is. I would not have known covetousness. If you think about covetousness, I think it's particular that he pulls that one out because of the Ten Commandments. That is the only one that is not immediately observable to the human eye. Right? If you commit murder, um, that's pretty obvious. People know that you've committed murder, that you've stolen something that's not yours. But covetousness is something that's internal. It's a matter of the heart. Paul says, I would have never even known that covetousness was a bad thing. Except the law said, do not covet. So the law is how we learn what sin is. Additionally, he says, 
The law aggravates and stirs up sin in our hearts, revealing how deep sin resides in us. So it's not just that it reveals sin, it also reveals how deeply sin is embedded within us. That we are sinful, not just that we commit sinful actions. And and of course, there's something very, 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 very important in that statement. Right? Sin is a matter of the heart. Sin is not just a matter of what we do and what we don't do. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the Christian life. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. It is, it is a false gospel. It is a worldly perspective. It is, it is unbelief. To, to, to look simply at the external actions as if those alone indicate sinfulness or, or encapsulate what sin is. So Paul is saying, look, I, I, I learned that covetous was bad, but, but he goes on to say, really, I, I died. I realized that it wasn't just something I did, it's who I am, it who, it's who I was. So, let me ask you though, um, why is this so? What, let, me, let me specify. Why does the law stir up sin? And how does this work? What does this mean? The law stirs up sin. The law incites sin. The law arouses sin. Somebody want to take a shot at that? Bingo. That's it. That's it. One answer. And <laughs> um, yeah, think about, think about um, the first temptation. What was the essence of the sinful desire of Adam and Eve? Anybody recall? Jordan? Excuse me? They could be like God. They could be like God. Exactly. It goes back to, to, to what Karen said. We want to be like God. We want to be sovereign. We, we, the essence of sinfulness is, is we want to be in control. And so the more that we are exposed to the law, the more we are reminded that we are not God the more that it prevents us from being sovereign over our lives. Thus, the more it stirs up sinful opposition to God and to His Word. That's how the law stirs up sin. And that's how the problem is sin. It's not the law. Is that clear? Are there any... Questions or comments on that? It's very, very important. Mark. Yes, I, I would absolutely say yes, but the thing that we ought to be careful there is that, um, you know, what role did that, you know, Adam didn't have a sinful nature. 
Um, and, and yet, you know, it seems to be that the commandment, thou shalt not eat of this tree, uh, incited something in him as well. Um, so I would agree with you, absolutely. It's, it's evidence of our sinful nature. I just think that when we, when we come to the question of Adam, things get a little bit murkier. Yes. Oh, yes, exactly. Basically a good person. And, you know, anybody who has children knows that, <laughs> or is even around children. Um, uh, my dad likes to tell this story. Thankfully, it's not of me. It's my sister, so I can, I can throw her under the bus, right? Um, of when she was two, and, and there's a candle on the table, and my dad's like, don't touch that, that's hot. And she looks right up at him and, you know, puts her finger in the candle because that's who children are as sinners, you tell me not to do something, and I'm going to do it. I used the example of last week. Uh, uh, the Brinkleys weren't here, but I, I, they were at the Biltmore. And I said, you know, when you're going through the Biltmore and you see that, that little rope, and there's a cool-looking room that says, you know, do not enter, what's your inclination? It's like, ooh, I wonder what's in there. I want to go in there. I want to see what that is. Um, you're hiding something from me. You're keeping something from me. I want to be in control. I deserve this. And that's what the law does to us. So the law stirs up sin because we want to be like God. We want to be sovereign over our lives. We don't want people, we don't want God, anyone telling us what to do. We see this all about in our culture, don't we? Love is love. Right? It's, it's what's in here that matters the most, my authentic self. It is me pursuing what makes me happy that is the essence of, 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 of life and flourishing and prosperity. The law stirs up sin in this way. Um, Augustine uses a great example, very famous example. I've talked about this with my, my daughter Hannah uh, many times. But um, he gives this example from his childhood. Of stealing pears. And I'll just read it right here. Uh, he writes, Near our vineyard there was a pear tree loaded with fruit, although the fruit was not particularly attractive either in color or taste. I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of pears of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. The pleasure was just in breaking the rules, breaking the law. This is the essence of sinfulness. And this is how the law and sinfulness, uh, the law incites sinfulness in us. Our sin gets pleasure simply by breaking the law when we are told not to. So I guess the question now is, um, is there a good purpose in this? 
Is there a good purpose in the law inciting sin? Maybe you can guess from my illustration there. We've already talked about it a little bit. But how easy it is to be in denial about the depth and nature of our sin. As if sin is a surface wound rather than a disease that is deep within. How easy it is to treat the surface wound. Right? You may have skin cancer and you put a band-aid over it. Maybe some neosporin. And you think that that solved the issue. Not knowing that the cancer has spread to all parts of your body. And this is only the external manifestation of something that's deep within that's going to destroy you. So we can be in denial about the nature of our sin. I don't commit those sins like those other people. I don't do those things. I don't act like that. I don't struggle with those things. That's not who I am. That was just, you know, an occasional thing that I fall into. That doesn't really represent me. I mean better. I just fell into the wrong crowd. I was listening to the wrong voices. I was struggling that day. I was hungry. I was weak. We make all these excuses and we don't realize or we're in denial about the depth and nature of our sin. And so there's a good purpose in that the law stirs this up so that we see it's not just a matter of stealing the pears, it's our love for iniquity. So the illustration, we must know we're sick in order to seek the medicine. We must know that we're sick in order to seek the message. Exposing of sin and stirring up sin opens our eyes to our condition. That we might look to another for salvation. That's where Paul goes at the very end of Romans 8. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, it's, it's not you. Paul realizes it's not me. I can't deliver myself from this body of death. This body of death. This inner deep Utter sinfulness, this disease that's, that, that's so permeate that, that, that it's not a matter of external actions. I can't deliver myself from this sin nature. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ is how he concludes, as we'll see. So the law serves his purpose to show us who we are so that we might despair in ourselves to look to another. That's Paul's point here. We can conclude here in verses 7 through 12. The law reveals sin. Sin uses the law to kill us and even deceive us that, that we can obey it unto life. Um, that's something else I kind of skipped over, but you know, when we talk about um, the law not only killing us, but it deceives us because we think, hey, it says, don't covet. I'm not going to covet. Therefore, I can, I can do this and live. Uh, that's another way in which the law can deceive, excuse me, not the law, but sin deceives us. Sin deceives us by looking at the law and, 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 and um, convincing us that we might be able to keep it in order to earn life. Sin is the killer. The law is the weapon. But the law is not the problem. The law is holy, righteous, and good because it reflects the nature of God. 
It exposes sin that we would seek another. It pushes us to Jesus Christ. It beautifies the redemption and salvation that we have in Christ. And we could go on and on. So, um, questions or comments on this first section before we move to the really confusing part? Cameron. Um, I, yes, uh, but typically in our day, that debate centers around the Mosaic Law. I mean, most people, okay, they, they come to the New Testament, Jesus says, love one another. Um, you know, they're not obey, uh, debating whether that is holy and good and useful. Um, but if you'll remember, when Jesus says, love one another, I mean, he's, he very clearly taught the two greatest commandments of the law. He summarized the whole entire law of the Old Testament as love God and love neighbor. So Jesus didn't bring anything new. Where the debate often is, is whether the Old Testament still applies to us in any sense. So yeah, is the Old Testament useful and good and righteous anymore? And of course, in reform, the Reformed tradition, the answer very clearly is yes. Um, our confession reads that, uh, uh, teaches that the, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law. Um, and, of course, you know, all the ceremonies and the rituals and the washings and the sacrifices and the theocracy have, have passed away, but there's a moral substance to love God and love neighbor that comes out of the Ten Commandments, and it's woven in throughout the Old Testament law, and that still serves a very useful purpose for us. But I think Paul, most specifically, is dealing with, I mean, well, I guess that question is, is kind of on his mind as well because he's dealing with, you know, the break between Judaism and the mo- movement to Christianity and Jew and Gentile relations. Other questions or comments? Mary? It was desire, absolutely. The, the question that we must wrestle with, Adam did not ha- and Eve did not have a sinful nature. They had no disposition to sin like we do. Um, they were made upright, holy, and righteous. So there was no sin, sinful inclination whatsoever. And that's where our situation is different. Um, but yes, it was the desire of the, the, the lust of the heart uh, the desire to be sovereign that, that fueled the first sin. Okay, volunteer to read this next section, verses, uh, that's not 7 through 12, sorry, that's going to be 13 through uh, 25. Someone read that loud and clear? Mark, thank you.
man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thank you, Mark. <clears throat> um, I mentioned this before, but this is a a passage that is hard to understand. It has been debated and dissected for um, definitely hundreds, thousands of years since, since it was written 2,000 years ago. And um, the big question is, of whom is Paul writing? Um, is he writing? When, okay, when he says, I, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Um, and then when he writes, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. The question is, is he speaking of his pre-conversion, before he was converted to Christ? His desire to obey the law, and yet struggling to do so. Or is he speaking of his post-conversion, his present desires and struggles with the law? This is a famous picture, I think it's Rembrandt, of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Somebody's got some answers for me. Is this pre-conversion Paul or post-conversion Paul? And, And you understand part of the debate, right? Because if he says... What I am doing, I do not understand. What I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, that I do. People struggle with whether a Christian can fall into that. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I find this law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to sin. People struggle with how can that be a Christian? Who's got an opinion? Pre or post conversion, Paul? Do we need to take a poll? Ooh, wow. Eileen? David seems to struggle with sin post conversion. Yes, Karis? That's a good argument. I haven't even considered that one. He's talking about sanctification in the context. He's talking about growing in grace. He's talking about the Christian life. He's not talking about justification. Well, okay. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Um, uh, first things first, I do want to say this. I, I, I lean towards the argument that at least verse 7 through 13 refers to his pre conversion experience as a Pharisee. Why? Um, there's a change in verb tense. Uh, the verbs of 7 through 13 are all in the past tense. Right? He says that, you know, the commandment, um, 
um, uh, I'm sorry. He says, uh, I was alive, once alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. So that, but then the, he changes the verb tense. In verse 14 on, all the verbs are in the present tense. Right? I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do. He's talking present tense. So a natural reading would be, oh, this is Paul in the present tense. This is what he's going through right now. Um, There's also a change in situation. Verse 7 through 13 talks about sin killing him. It killed him. He's dead. Uh, But from verse 14 on, he describes an ongoing struggle with sin. A struggle in which he, he, he refuses to surrender. He doesn't give in to sin. He struggles with this flesh and spirit, but he doesn't give in to it. Uh, another argument here, there are many things that, may, that make it seem impossible that from verse 13 on could refer to an unbeliever. Paul delights in God's law in my inner being, even though sin is at work in him. Can an unbeliever delight in the law of God? Unbelievers cannot delight in God's law in their heart of hearts. He goes on to say in the next chapter that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it submit to God's law. So there seems to be a conflict here. How can an unbeliever delight in God's law in his inner being? An unbeliever can delight in God's law outwardly, like a Pharisee, but not inwardly. Um, Mark pointed out as well, there's a struggle here. There's no real struggle between the flesh and the spirit in unbelievers. Paul is speaking of this war uh, that he speaks of elsewhere, particularly in the the, the book of Galatians. The war between the flesh, the indwelling flesh, and walking by the Spirit. And and so the picture here again is something that he speaks of elsewhere. It's something that, that that is characteristic of a believer and not an unbeliever. Unbelievers don't struggle internally with sin. Not in the, in the way that a believer does. So there's a strong argument that verse 13 and following can't be the words of an unbeliever, but that he's describing his present experience. And, and really, if you look at the Reformed tradition, the Reformed tradition has almost unilaterally accepted, uh, interpreted this as referring to post-conversion Paul it's, it's really more the, the Arminians, the Wesleyans, who, who argue for a doctrine of Christian perfectionism that argue that it can't be a believer. Because they, uh, you know, following John Wesley and others, they, they, help, they hold that you can actually become sinless and reach a state of, of perfection in the Christian life where you don't struggle with sin anymore. So... For us, I think it's, it's pretty clear. But I'm going to throw a curveball at you. And um, I want to synthesize this. And, you know, so I've given you the traditional reform per, tr- uh, position. Now I want to offer something that was taught to me by one of my professors, Dr. Gen- Dennis Johnson at Westminster Seminary, California, PCA pastor. Um, He's uh, retired now uh, and lives near here. 
Uh, but he's written extensively on Romans 7, a New Testament scholar. And, and he's put forth a slightly different view that, that I want to throw out here to you this morning. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go through this really, really quick. Um, and I'm going to follow him and say, I don't think Paul has strict pre- or post-conversion ideas in his mind, as if it's just clear-cut. Um, Dr. Johnson argues that he employs a common first-century rhetorical device. He uses a first-person pronoun, I, not just to refer to himself, but also to humanity in Israel's experience under the law. Uh, an example here would be Galatians 2.18 where he says, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He's not speaking of his actual experience, but, he, but he's saying, look, if I follow this line of thought, this is what I'm doing. I think he's doing something similar here. And hear me out. I believe he's presenting Israel as a microcosm of all humanity under the law, whether Adam under God's commandment in the garden or Israel's life under the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if you haven't been here for this series, then some of this language and some of this might be blurry. We've, we've worked through this in detail because I believe you know, from chapter 2 on, really, he has this in view, this parallel between Adam and Israel. So, uh, a kind of synthesis here following Dennis Johnson, if I, if I may. Um, the past tense of verse 7 through 12 refers to the fall of Adam and the fall of Israel, which both came right after receiving the law. And in many respects, is true of Paul and his own experience. This, the, the law came and I died. It killed me. Do not eat of the tree. And Adam and Eve died. Before even Moses got down from the mountain, Israel had broken the covenant. Both were promised life. Adam was promised life, eternal life. Israel was promised temporal life in the promised land. If you obey the covenant, you can dwell here and you'll be safe. And this coincides with Paul as a Pharisee. Verse 13 and following refer to the effects of the fall which include Adam's one sin that led to depravity for all people, Israel's repeated violation of the law and their inability to keep it, even when God says, if you break it again, I'm going to judge you, and they broke it again, they were unable to keep it. And here is where I'm going to coincide with the Reformed tradition and say, this is a common, present experience of believers particularly when we forget the truths of verses 1 through 6, that we have been freed from the law. There is a war between the flesh and the spirit. We fall into, often, experiences and perspectives which reflect the latter part of Romans 7. So it is a common present experience of believers. So what this means then? If we live as if we're bound to the law as a covenant of works, 
if we, if, you know, in common vernacular, that is, you're legalists. We're legalists. If we misunderstand the role and the place of the law in the Christian life, then sin is incited all the more, and we will do the very thing that we hate. Isn't that, I mean, if you just think about that, if the law incites sin in you, that's, that's, that's evidence that you're, you, that you're not looking at the law and the gospel properly, if I may say. The desire might be there, verse 18, but relying upon our own strength as if we are responsible for fulfilling this covenant of obedience, we will not be able to carry it out. And our delight might be in the law, but evil will lie close at hand and our bodily members will make us captive to the law of sin and death. This is the irony of of of, you know, the, the role of the law in the Christian life in the sense of it, it is a good and wonderful thing when embraced within the promises of Christ. But when we, when we in our flesh, use the law or view the law wrongly, it stirs up all this evilness within us. And we can fall into that as Christians. Um, in this excellent book, The Whole Christ, I took the ladies through this a couple of years ago. The ladies in our church, we did a chapter-by-chapter chapter study on it. Uh, this is a um, phenomenal book. Um, phenomenal. I can't even say enough about it. I love this book. It's one of the best books written, um, I think, in the last uh, 10 years for sure. It tackles these issues. Um, I've read it three times. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says this. Believers are free now from the laws of a covenant of works. Christ has both kept God's commandments for us and paid the penalty of, our breach in our, uh, of their breach in our place. We are free from the condemnation in the reign of sin. Paul's made this clear already. But we are not yet free from the presence of sin. And until that day dawns, we may still be haunted by the specter of the law seen, as we once saw it exclusively, as a condemning power. So we're still haunted by this condemning power of the law. True, we who were once sold under sin, upon whom sin had closed the mortgage, have now been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer under law, but under grace. Yet so long as the law uncovers sin in our lives, we are liable to fall back into the old legal view of ourselves. This is why the psychology of the old life can take much longer to shift than its theology. The difference here, right? The psychology of day-to-day living takes a long time, while the theology, usually, we may have that set. We understand the gospel, yet there is a continuity in the person who lived under the law's condemnation and knew nothing of grace in Christ. We may have moved into a new house, fully paid for, but it may be a long time before it loses all the vestiges of its former owner. 
So with us, there remains in us much that can easily stimulate the legalistic instincts of our past. Thus, many Christians find that the sunshine of God's grace in Christ is obscured, and they walk uncertainly in the dark instead of in the light. They need to learn that Jesus is more full of grace than I of sin. John Bunyan's pilgrim was not the first nor the last to wander out of the way of the house, wander out of the way toward the house of Mr. Legality. I think he encapsulates Paul's point at the end of Romans 7. We know these things based upon the gospel. Learning to live in light of them takes a long time. And Paul is reflecting that struggle in the latter part of Romans 7. And he's calling us out of this legalistic view and wrong view of the law. That we might live in the beauty and light and fullness and freedom of the gospel. That leads then to the solution and the conclusion. What is the answer? Is it more law? Is it more effort? Is it more self-discipline? No, thanks be to God, this deliverance comes through Jesus Christ. Only in Christ we find our justification. Only in Christ we find our sanctification, freedom from sin. Only in Christ is the law transformed from a foe to a friend. The law cannot save us, and the law cannot sanctify us. It is only the power of Christ that breaks the the, the bonds of sin in our salvation and the power of sin in our sanctification as well, the power of Christ to overcome the power of sin in making us holy. So let me give you the conclusion and then you can, we'll have a couple of minutes for questions and feedback. <sighs> I know, there's a lot, there's a lot. It cannot save or justify, but it shows us our sin. Even the most advanced and mature of Christians will continue to struggle with sin. Even the most holy will and must cry out, O wretched man that I am. Even the most knowledgeable will, will, will struggle with falling back under the laws of covenant of works, revealing this Romans 7 pattern. Paul writes in stark terms about our sinful flesh, that we might glory as, grasp the glory of the gospel and appreciate the imputed righteousness that we have. And only if our hearts truly cry out at our own wretchedness, Will we know the hope and liberation of looking away from ourselves and looking at Christ and what God has done through Him? We never move beyond the gospel. As if I'm converted, I don't now struggle with the laws of covenant of works. The gospel is for every day. It's because we forget. And Christ offered to us in the gospel is the answer to it all, which is why all, all of our devotional life, all of our church life, all of our prayer life, must be centered upon Him. Thanks for letting me get through that. Any last questions or comments? Anything to add? Okay, y'all are done, I guess.